Hello, I'm Andrew Hart, Director at SPD Automotive. Welcome to the sixth and last episode in this series focused on the future of the automotive industry. Throughout this series, we've been gradually working our way through each of the case letters, connectivity, autonomy, shared mobility, and electrification. In our last episode, we're gonna fast forward to 2030 and explore what we think will and won't happen by then. To help us with that, we've invited back many of the SPD experts we had during our previous episodes. Lee Coleman, who heads up our connected car research team, Alain Dunoyer, who heads up our autonomous research team, Mel Albador, who manages our shared mobility practice, and Robert Fisher, who manages our EV research. Welcome back, everyone. So before I start asking you to gaze into the future, I wanted to first highlight some of the key lessons you shared during the first episodes. And as I was listening to them again, three key points jumped out. The first is that CASE is more than just about technology. All four of our experts pointed out how important the user experience ultimately is. We've done a lot of benchmarking of CASE over the last few years and found that in every single one of those letters, a poor user experience can cripple a CASE strategy. We've seen broken registration processes, slow responsiveness of companion apps, lack of support and guidance for drivers, and bizarre behaviors of autonomous vehicles, all of which can lead to a highly frustrating journey. So increasingly, we're starting to shift beyond talking about CASE and towards talking about X case, with a good user experience being at the forefront of a good case strategy. The second lesson I wanted to highlight from the series was the incredible shift we're seeing in the ecosystem from a very traditional pyramid structure to a much more complex mesh of partnerships. This leaves car makers and suppliers with a big question. What should your role be in the enabling the future of case? Some are trying to become vertically integrated end-to-end -end players, doing everything from building cars to offering mobility services. But for the majority, it will be a case of carefully choosing where they feel they can add the most value and working hard to build strong partnerships to augment that offering. The third and final lesson that jumped out was the need to accept and in fact embrace a much greater level of regional and local fragmentation. As an industry, we're accustomed to building global platforms, which for things like engines and transmissions has traditionally worked well. But for services and infrastructure, it can be much harder to build a one-size-fits-all solution. Consumer needs, mobility patterns, and government regulations will all continue to vary significantly from city to city and country to country. We need a global strategy and vision, but every company should be thinking about how to bring that strategy and vision down to a local size. So with all of that said, let's bring in our experts. I'm gonna be asking each of them three questions. What do you think is very likely to happen by 2030? What do you think is very unlikely to happen by 2030? And what curveballs could disrupt the speed or direction of the industry? Let's start with you, Lee. Tell us what you see as being almost a given by 2030. Well, right now we're in a connectivity way, which I describe as foundational. We're approaching maturity, uh, and that's about achieving enough connectivity scale to developing use cases worthwhile. So out of 1.2 billion passenger vehicles in operation globally, we're currently about 20% fitment of connectivity in that fleet, but that's rising really fast. Uh, today, two out of three cars sold in prime markets of US, China, and Europe have a factory fitted modem. And in five years' time, almost every car is going to have a factory fitted device. But it's not just the connection that exists that's important, it's the level of data sharing with other ecosystems. And the layering and analysis of those data sets is where the value is created. So once all cars are connected to the cloud, the level of integration to other ecosystems 
become really simple. It's as simple as gaining consumer consent for integrating to other APIs. And that's where the pace of those interconnections is going to be startling over the next 10 years. So growing closely behind the wave of connectivity, increased consumer awareness and control over the way that data is managed. Uh, as our reliance on connected service increases year on year, awareness of the value exchange improves among consumers. And the right to know what data companies hold about us and what it's used for is now written into law. And that's evolving continuously to be ever more consumer centric. We studied this in partnership with the Future of Privacy Forum and we made a scoring framework to assess best practice for consumer-centric data handling. We were quite surprised to see that out of a 100-point maximum score, the very best data controllers are hitting scores of only 60 at the moment. But that is going to improve quickly over the next 10 years. Subject access requests are enlightening customers to the scale of data that's held about them. Uh, it's massive, it's growing, and it has value. The GDPR regulations have best practice guidelines that recommend that data controllers implement self-service subject access requests for consumers that serve up data in a machine-readable format. And this is really significant. If we're able to self-serve data that's held about us, then it's not a big stretch to imagine being able to set up a digital logger to mirror data that's collected in our digital lives. Once we've got the ability to control who we'd like to share data with in return for improved convenience or value from service providers, we're on a path towards much more control over how consumer data is used and what benefit they get from it. It's a logical extension of the settings and dashboards that more progressive data handlers provide today to manage who we share data with. So what do you think is very unlikely to happen by 2030? Well, I would say that the, the walled garden of connectivity ecosystems uh, that are centered around individual car brands is all but over. The major trends towards collaboration, cooperative systems, normalized data sets. And we're going to see that accelerate activity uh, over the next 10 years with much more collaboration within consortia. That'll be the norm rather than the exception, as car makers realize that for the benefit of scale that we spoke about, they're going to have to work together so that the, the brokering side, the data purchase side of the equation has enough mass and uh, uh, uniformity. Another prediction that Google Automotive services will find their way onto many vehicles, but it won't be ubiquitous. Uh, we won't see car makers giving up on making differentiated in-vehicle solutions, and uh, they'll still be working hard, pouring in R&D dollars to underline the characteristics of their brand with the in-vehicle experience. And what are some of the disruptors that you'd expect people to, to have to look out for over the next 10 years? Well, I think one of the big ones is related to the first point about consumers having access to that, uh, that data market themselves, as well as businesses. Those developments are going to attract data brokers who will unlock the value data for consumers as well as businesses. And they, in turn, will provide feedback loops and a closer coupling to solution providers about what data is valuable to collect. That feedback loop and close coupling has a really interesting impact. Uh, on the way that data is collected, including from vehicles. It's not a stretch to imagine dynamic reprofiling of devices becoming commonplace in response to that analysis of demand. And increasingly, information rather than data will be sourced from devices huge processing. Excellent. Thanks, Lee. So, Alan, moving on to autonomy, what do you think is very likely to happen by 2030? 
So what is a pretty much a given is the uh, generalization and the standardization of many ADAS, especially the one aimed at collision avoidance. You can also expect uh, a, a more widely introduction of uh, hands-free driving, so uh, level two plus uh, type of systems, and some very limited introduction of level three, most likely uh, um, the INEX brand, S-Class, and Audi of this world. Uh, we will certainly have four system in very small um, volume out there on the road. Um, but, so that's for passenger mobility. Uh, in for delivery as a goods, uh, services and automation, maybe some level four will start to appear and uh, going beyond the, uh, the standard trials. So maybe some commercial services and possibly even more likely some uh, truck platooning in the US. What about in terms of the ecosystem itself? Do you expect anything to definitively happen by 2030 in terms of consolidation uh, or in terms of M&A? So I think what we're certainly going to see is uh, some of those startups um, which are still in the early phases and the one who managed to survive, they are very likely to get acquired by bigger players. Uh, so a fair amount of consolidation, including the T1s, we, we can expect, uh, certainly uh, by the time we get to 2030. There is too many of those companies, really, and only a very few of them will uh, will succeed, and we will need immense amount of capital to, to continue um, the development. Very unlikely to happen. Well, um, I would say the deployment of true level four on passenger vehicle is probably too far away, even for by 2030. Possibly some application in terms of parking at the level four, but even then that's going to be very limited due to the constraint in terms of the uh, infrastructure requirement. Um, other thing uh, that we'll see, I guess, is the debate of uh, artificial intelligence and uh, the, the debate debate between strong AI and weak AI. So in other words, the fact that the computer can become uh, superior and more intelligent than than a human brain. Uh, I certainly don't think we'll get there uh, by 2030. Um, computers are getting a lot better before very specific tasks. When it comes to the time to comprehend the world and comprehend it and act upon it safely, uh, there's still a long way to go. Um, so I think AI is um, is brilliant. Yeah, the full AI is not going to happen. And maybe another one I could see is the a fully fledged comprehensive homologation process for level four. Uh, there will be something in place, but um, it would be just for very specific scenarios. And what kind of disruptors do you think people should be looking out for over the next 10 years? So things that could effectively change 2030 kind of landscape. In terms of vehicle autonomy, certainly one thing that could change badly the evolution is if uh, a major accidents and fatalities were to happen at level three or level four systems. Um, that would definitely slow down things and um, I guess force the legislator to 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 be a lot uh, harder on, on those startups and uh, um, manufacturers who want to deploy those uh, fully automated vehicles. Another thing I could see uh, as a major disruptor could be if some AV leaders uh, that we see today were to give up just completely apophatically, if Waymo decided to stop the operation altogether, that would probably send a bit of a shockwave to the rest of the industry. Equally, you know, in, a, in a positive way, if uh, if Amazon was to acquire Zooks and if I was to become a fully integrated operation and being used for automating their whole logistic operation, that would be a, a major change because I would show that actually there as a service can scale and automation uh, brings some very significant business case benefit. So that would certainly encourage other companies to, to follow suit. A final point in terms of things that could also change the landscape quite significantly is China. 
So if uh, we start seeing, for example, some Chinese OEM uh, overtaking, maybe some more traditional US or European OEMs, that will change uh, the landscape quite a bit. And also, if those vehicles will started to uh, to be imported in Europe or in the US market, that will certainly intensify the competition um, and the, the technology race towards uh, autonomous vehicles. Thanks, Alan. That was really interesting. So over to you, Mo. What do you think is very likely to happen by 2030 when it comes to shared mobility? Well, let's focus on two separate things here. The first one is the services, and the second one is the uh, the workers for these services. From the service perspective, we'll continue to see evolution and consolidation. Um, as we discussed on the previous webinar, by 2030, we expect at least a handful of major city to have worked with uh, shared mobility companies to integrate with public transport systems for a true public-private partnership and a true uh, multimodal experience for uh, consumers. So that multimodal app will be um, real, at least in some places. From the workers' perspective, there will continue to be a debate about the status of gig workers in general, but as shared mobility services become more public, there will have to be some evolution of their status as well, just to be comparable to um, other people who work in public transport as well. On the other hand, we'll also start seeing um, autonomous vehicles being used more widely, which will also have a direct impact on workforce, especially drivers, in that sense. What about what isn't likely to happen by 2030? Can you give us any examples of what you wouldn't expect to see? So I think um, robo-taxis everywhere is probably unlikely. So setting the technology aside, which Alan has addressed so well, um, looking at uh, kind of which cities and which countries will be able to get it right by then, the majority of cities will probably still be too complicated for autonomous vehicles to run efficiently um, everywhere. So you might see some autonomous zones, but generally speaking, drivers will still be needed and will still be required. What about in terms of globalization of services? Do you expect that by 2030, there'll be a, a truly kind of scalable international offering uh, beyond kind of Uber? Well, we talked about shared vehicles needing to focus on uh, locality and the local experience uh, in order to be successful. So really the only services that will be able to scale are also the ones that will be able to accommodate for these local differences. If you think even of, about public transport and taxi services, uh, no two cities really have an identical solution or system. So shared mobility isn't going to come in and have a template for that that would work for all cities across the world. So I think that's that's basically the contrast that these services will have to live with in order to be successful and still and scale in that way. And what do you think are some of the disruptive game changes to watch out for that could change the direction of shared mobility? Well, I think we're living through one right now. Whether it's the pandemic and the social impact that it's having on uh, people's behaviors and people uh, how people move around and their attitudes towards uh, shared vehicles and getting into vehicles with people that they don't know, or the economic impact that's going to, to last for uh, at least the next couple of years. So really living through that first disruption and that first major speed bump for shared mobility. So we'll have to see how, it, how shared mobility evolves um, and how it adapts to these conditions in particular. Um, and then the other one, of course, being in the near future uh, in the form of autonomous vehicles, where they will present some challenges while also presenting a lot of opportunity for uh, new business models, for really new use cases that can be assisted with from shared mobility perspective. 
we've seen a few examples of cities uh, recently almost using COVID as an excuse to implement stricter no-car zones. And it feels like that could accelerate in some ways car-free cities. Do you think that could have a disruptive effect on shared mobility? Absolutely, yes. Especially if uh, more downtown areas become car-free, as you mentioned, then you're, you'll also be looking at a lack of parking in that area. So people would be discouraged of driving their own vehicles um, into those downtown areas. Uh, so we're, we'll start to see a lot of uh, park and ride type solutions, especially as uh, autonomous vehicles become more prevalent. If it's a, if, if it's an area that's closed to uh, public vehicles, um, then we'll start seeing that park, park and ride solution where people drive their vehicles to a certain point and then take that autonomous shuttle to downtown where they can be pedestrians. So absolutely, that's a kind of a complete change in the urban design, um, a lot of these cities. However, we'll see if these changes are permanent or if they'll be reverted back once, you know, once people are allowed back into restaurants and uh, that type of change happens. We talk a lot about cities, but if you think about in 2030, do you expect many uh, local and city governments to start coordinating more at a national level with national authorities to be able to create uh, more kind of um, national solutions? That is the hope. So we've heard from a lot of cities, including uh, Los Angeles and New York and Las Vegas, who want to work together in order to have better solutions for both their inhabitants and their visitors, as they all see a, lot, a large volume of tourism in particular. But I think one of the biggest challenges really comes down to the data. Uh, one of the projects that we worked on in the past is uh, looking across all the cities in the U.S. to see which ones are compatible uh, with which type of mobility service. And while all the cities are happy to provide data, there's little compatibility in how uh, this data is presented, how this data is stored. Um, so if that is to happen, then we'll be looking at a large level of commitment and a large level of investment from these cities in order to get it right. And I think if it does happen, then it needs to start with the big major cities in the world. And then the rest tend to follow suit geographically as well. That's an excellent roundup of shared mobility by 2030. Thanks, Mo. Appreciate it, Andy. Thank you. Robert, over to you. Uh, let's talk about electrification. What do you expect to have definitely happened by 2030 within the industry? Well, we certainly expect that EVs will continue their gradual increase globally. Um, but of course, this year has been a very difficult year for the auto industry. And EVs have not been hit quite as hard, but we do expect a slowdown in EV adoption, mostly due to the reduction in uh, available funds from consumers looking for a new car. I think a lot of consumers will be looking for a slightly cheaper car, and that's probably going to take them back to ICE vehicles instead. Also, in the wake of COVID, governments are likely to be more cautious about any additional incentive spending. And of course, that's going to negatively affect uptake as well. And uh, we, we do think that OEMs really need to focus on cost reduction as those incentive programs and grants are being kind of pulled back or at least not expanded as much as they were. Uh, so the, the price of that vehicle is going to rise from the consumer's perspective. Uh, looking at the vehicle technology, we should expect to see some early adoption of solid-state batteries, which should improve charging performance and range. I, I don't expect that to be really across the board, but maybe up to 50% adoption of solid-state batteries by 2030. And then true parity with ICE vehicle price, I, I think that will probably occur in the 2025 to 2030 range, where most segments are seeing the price between an EV and a fuel vehicle uh, as being roughly equivalent. 
However, sustainability is really where OEMs need to focus as the media and the general public begin to question whether EVs are truly as eco-friendly eco as promised. What do you expect not to happen by 2030? What are some of the kind of promises that maybe have already been made or some of the hype that's been out there that you think probably won't pan out the way that the industry maybe expects it? Well, I think the, the biggest issue right now is with trucking. Uh, a lot of companies are, are seeing BEVs as an opportunity to convert trucks over to an electric platform, which could indeed bring some, some nice ecological advantages. But when you look at the raw numbers, that only makes sense on a very short haul route. So I think that most trucks are still going to remain internal combustion for the uh, near future and even up through 2030, maybe even longer. Uh, another thing is that we will see charging speeds continue to increase, but we will not reach true parity with the with refuel time for ICE vehicles, except maybe at certain specific charging points along the motorway. Excellent. And what about some of the disruptors that might change the direction or the speed of the industry? I think one of the biggest disruptors we have would be fuel cell. Uh, right now, it doesn't seem very likely that we will uh, have widespread fuel cell adoption. That's simply because production of hydrogen is not efficient right now. Uh, it could require another 10, 20, 30 years, but it's possible to start to see some of the breakthroughs that really improve the efficiency of that production and even the, the storage of the hydrogen in the tank. Thank you, Robert. Very interesting. So there we have SPD's view on what to expect from CASE over the next 10 years. In this series, we've focused a lot on where the industry is going and when it's likely to get there. We're thinking about another series that would be much more focused on the how. How can companies in this sector develop compelling user experiences? How can car IT and software teams build robust and future-proof platforms? How should companies choose case partners? If these are the types of questions that you'd like to hear answers for as part of a potential second series, then let us know. If we do move ahead with a second series, we want to make sure that we focus in on what matters most to you. To give you a bit of a teaser of some of those topics we're likely to cover in that second series, we've invited Alex Euler to join us. Alex heads up the Car IT Research and Consultants Practice at SPD. Alex, great to have you here. Thanks, Andy. Happy to be here. Talk us through what you're seeing in terms of the convergence of cars with IT and consumer technology trends and some of the new strategies that OEMs are taking to develop case solutions. Yeah, absolutely, Andy. Thank you very much. Obviously, at SBD, we spend a lot of time working with our customers at OEMs, the, the tier ones, IT service providers, even, even the cloud providers, trying to figure out really the right balance between the traditional or old school automotive, which is focused really around um, rigid quality processes, keeping costs down, controlling costs, and focusing on you know, five to 10 year product development plans, and marrying that with a lot of the disruptive ideas that the technology and um, information technology industry brings to bear. Thinking about things like developer ecosystems, building long-term platforms that can be iterated on over time uh, using agile development methodologies. So we can see that really automotive OEMs bring a global scale to the table and a big business to support that. But there's a big value proposition as well from the technology industry through its developers, APIs, services, content, and even monetizing the data from the car as well as consumers. So if we look at what this ecosystem looks like, OEMs have a really big task in front of them. If we look at kind of the four main quadrants of this uh, within the vehicle, the business models to support uh, connected services, 
the infrastructure in the cloud to support uh, the connected vehicle in the case ecosystem, and then the overarching customer experience. We see a lot of disruptive, difficult, and new technologies that OEMs need to either build or buy to build competitive customer experiences in the vehicle. So we've seen OEMs take on very strategic investments around building out developer communities uh, and enabling new business models through developer communities, through partnering with cloud platform service providers such as Microsoft and Amazon to develop services in the cloud, to really create novel customer experiences by integrating app stores through Google Automotive Services and third-party content from providers such as Spotify, as well as, of course, rich voice-based experiences where we've seen extensive development from companies such as Amazon, Google, uh, SoundHound, and uh, Serence. And then in the vehicle, there's a completely different set of technologies being developed, starting with the electrical architectures at the baseline and developing brand new electrical architectures to support highly complex autonomous driving features and the ability to treat the car not just as a static functional-based vehicle, but really the software-defined car. If we look at the companies that are involved in this ecosystem, we really like to bin them into six different types of companies or products and services. Of course, at the bottom, we have tier ones that are um, involved uh, in the traditional automotive uh, supply chain. These companies also face a significant amount of disruption from tier two software providers, uh, again, such as Google, because a lot of their traditional system integration business is being cannibalized by the platforms that OEMs are choosing to partner or source from these software providers. So tier ones are looking to extend their connected service offering or case uh, footprint through other value add acquisitions or, or services. On top of that, operating systems are playing a key role in the type of services and experiences that OEMs can build, both in the infotainment as well as across the full vehicle. Uh, but in the context of really the digital cockpit, we see companies such as LG, as well as open source initiatives such as Automotive Grade Linux, and of course Google's Android being very important uh, platforms for OEMs. If we look at the applications and services that are built on top of operating systems, many uh, uh, software as a service providers, such as here, Telenav, Serence, Amazon, uh, and even uh, Harman, who has really done a good job of diversifying themselves, are bringing maps, navigation, voice assistance, as well as digital ecosystems and applications to bear to integrate into the vehicle to create experiences that really are more digital than, than the old analog uh, in vehicle experience. And finally, if we look at the highest layer, we've seen the uh, major cloud providers globally, such as Microsoft, Hitachi, AWS, Google, um, as well as companies like Fujitsu, and, and then in China, ba uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, make automotive a major priority for them, both from the connected vehicle perspective, as well as from the autonomous and shared mobility perspective. All of these companies are figuring out the right ways to work with each other to build an experience that is bigger than the sum of its parts and really provides a competitive, uh, extensible solution for OEMs. On the OEM side, of course, it's not so simple as just sourcing from all of these uh, individual companies. OEMs now have to stitch together the right supply chain as well as pick which elements they want to build themselves to support 
the, the vehicle. This is why we've seen really a long-term shift towards open source software in the vehicle, because OEMs can then take that and infinitely customize it to meet their own suitable requirements. And over time, we expect this concept of the operating system to really extend into the vehicle. If you look at what Volkswagen is doing with its car software organization and VWOS, they are developing an entire software-defined vehicle using the operating system across all of the ECUs in the vehicle to orchestrate a services-based approach uh, to the functions and services of the vehicle itself, providing the real platform for Volkswagen to be able to maintain that vehicle, add new services and capabilities over the entire lifetime of the car, similar to what Tesla is able to do. Over time, we expect additional OEMs to join this trend. For example, General Motors Digital Vehicle Platform, um, as well as many other OEMs joining forces to take on these really hard engineering projects that OEMs just don't, haven't done before. And here at SBD, we're really excited to think about what comes next. Our researchers are actively considering what type of investments in cloud and IT can be brought down into the vehicle and what types of ways of working perhaps even more importantly, can OEMs adopt to um, really align themselves in such a way that they can successfully compete in the next generation of connected autonomous vehicles. Thank you, Alex, for that teaser of what to expect in a, in a potential second series. And I'd like to thank all of you listening for joining us throughout this series. We hope that you found it useful. If you've liked this webinar series, and please join us for our upcoming conference, Mobility at a Crossroads. Liam Moe will be joining, as well as our head of SPD North America, Jeff Hanna, and a great lineup of speakers from Amazon, Intel, here and various others. We hope you enjoy the rest of your week and look forward to seeing you again soon.